You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. My name is Steve Marici, and uh, I'm super excited to be here and see each and every one of you, especially having been a disciple now, uh, what am I coming up on? 33 years? Yeah, 33 years in December. And having had the opportunity, what was that? Okay, thank you. Uh, definitely, definitely exciting times, though, looking back over the last 34 years and the uh, multiple missions offerings we've been able to be a part of, and actually uh, going back to, I believe it was 93 or 94, we had uh, a young man and a young woman from our campus ministry that were part of the Vietnamese planting uh, way back in the day. So we've seen the Russian team sent out, we've, we've seen miscellaneous teams sent to various parts of the world, and then seeing the youth that have been impacted, the generational leadership that's been raised up, and just amazing things, miraculous things worldwide. Uh, we're going to go ahead and continue with our series today, Dinner with Jesus. And uh, specifically today for me, I'm speaking about the unexpected guest. Um, I think with that, I just wanted to mention too, I, I think Rhett may have uh, hit this, appreciate him setting things up and obviously putting this all together for us when it comes to this series uh, the title is inspired by a book with the title of A Meal with Jesus, Discovering Grace, Community, and Mission Around the Table. So uh, I want to embark on a journey today that will help us with some familial and community aspects of that kind of connection, which starts with something we all have to do, which what would that be that we all have to do? There, there, there are a couple of good ones in there that I kind of like. Sometimes some of them come easier than others. Sleep isn't always the easiest. No. But no matter what the situation is, I manage to find time to eat. And that is pretty much something we all need to do, right? Is eat. So before I get any of your juices stirred up and you start thinking about lunch, let's go ahead and continue here. We do have lunch with the Wingies after, a little bit of discipling time. I'm looking forward to connecting with them and the guidance we get from them throughout the years here. Um, with that, any of you ever go garage sailing? Yes. we got a few of you here that like a deal, it sounds like. I love garage sales. I love thrift stores. My, my latest love is Poshmark. No offense, where did my wife go? She already bailed me. Oh, there she is. You guys are going to be able to hear from her a little bit later. She's going to be doing the uh, missions offering for us today. We're excited to hear from her about that. But uh, one of my favorite finds took place in Oxnard, California, jeez, uh, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago, before we came down here. Actually, so that means it would be 14, 15 years ago. Uh, we were at a yard sale, and uh, weren't really prepared for it. I had 10 bucks in my pocket. And there was this amazing chest that we saw, and it, but it had a $100 tag on it. It was one of those old trunks, you know, that they used in the late 1800s, early 1900s for cruises. I mean, this thing was sweet. You know, it's got the leather straps, the nails. Uh, you open it up, and there's this little compartment thing that sits in the top, broken out, and all these little things that you can put whatever it was they carried that they needed small compartments for back then in the day. But anyway, so they wanted 100 bucks, And I see this husband and wife, and they're kind of bickering about it back and forth. She wants it. He doesn't. I only had 10 bucks. They wanted 100 so I walked up to the one of them all with Jackie's prodding, of course. And I go, would you take 10 bucks for it? And she's all thinks about it for a minute, 
and I hear the woman like totally blasting her husband for allowing me to step in before him, and she says yes. So I give her the 10 bucks. <laughs> oh, well, kind of hard to see clarity on that. That was taken with my phone. The lighting must have been bad. Sorry about that. If you look at the back one, it's a little bit clearer. It turns out, again, this is one of my favorite finds. It's an antique Belber traveling hard case steamer trunk. It's worth about 1,200 bucks today. Jack says, oh, we need to sell it. I did a little research prior to this. I, was, I had no clue when I bought it. Uh, it. It's amazing, too. It's got, you know, the little stickers of, for passport one night. And it's got Italy on there. There's a few different places they had been with this particular trunk. But anyway, so needless to say, as we all know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But once in a while, you, we do, all of us have stumbled on that unexpected find, right? That unexpected treasure where somebody kind of underestimates what it's actually worth. So today, we're going to be talking about that a little bit. Our first passage is out of Luke 7, verse 36. I want to give Brian a shout out this morning. Brian, Craig, you're amazing, my brother. Love you, man. <clears throat> so in Luke 7, Jesus has been preaching in Galilee for about a year, and people generally were super excited to see him. Jesus had been busy. He had healed a leper, paralytic, Dozens of other people at this point in time. He even cast out demons, raised a little son from the dead. And all this had taken place before the event we see here in Luke 7, verse 36. Now, with that, the Pharisees were already starting to get a little burnt out on Christ and the influence that he had, the, the, the multitude of people that were following him. And Jesus didn't pander to the religious leaders, that religious crowd back in the day. And occasionally he would say things that would kind of stir them up, that would ruffle the feathers a little bit, and challenge their man-made rules. They definitely didn't like him, but they weren't sure how to deal with him. Do they quietly ignore him? Do they publicly oppose him? Do they attempt to attract him? Or is there another way they can destroy him and the impact that he was having? And Simon the Pharisee believes he's found another way to deal with Jesus, a way to humiliate this new teacher and render his influence useless. So let's go ahead and continue in uh, Luke 7 here, verse 37. It says, A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears then she wiped them with her hair and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So we see Jesus being invited to Simon's house for a meal. And generally speaking, in this time frame, the way some of the homes were set up in the courtyards, it was more than likely people were able to stand outside and hear and see what was going on. So we have this woman, and we have Simon's reaction to it. And the thing that's interesting about it is Simon totally blew off the social etiquette of the day, which is you have a dinner guest come over. There are a number of things that you would normally do. For us, we, we might greet people with a hug, handshake, kiss, whatever it may be. Back then, it was a matter of, because of the travels and generally speaking, how filthy the streets were, you were welcome into a home like this, you'd be sat down, the servants of the individuals who owned the home would come and wash your feet, they would anoint your head with oil, 
there were all these niceties that should have taken place. But needless to say, that wasn't the case with Simon. Simon did none of those things. And it's apparent from this particular account that his actions were deliberate. Now, imagine going to a party yourself. I don't know about you, I'm kind of a social person. I, I love meeting people. Um, generally speaking, for me, it's a handshake or a hug. Now, if, so, if you were to extend your hand to somebody in a situation like that, and they were just like, how would that make you feel? And that would kind of be what, that would be how we would feel today. It's awkward, it's unloving. It might even be viewed as being a little rude, right? You know, for somebody to suddenly refuse extending their hand in return. And that's what Simon demonstrated in his behavior towards Christ. But why? Why go to all the trouble of inviting this new teacher to your home, putting on this lavish meal, and maybe even opening up your home to the community so they can come and observe Jesus and Jesus' interaction with Simon? And I believe personally that Simon's actions here, his objective was to provoke Jesus to get under his skin, to throw him off balance, to put him on defensive, to maybe go Jesus and even making a statement or behaving in such a way that he could use that to embarrass Christ. He could use it against him later on. And we know Jesus. Jesus is what? He's, he's man in the flesh, right? When it comes to emotionally, physically, spiritually, all the things that we have to contend with, he's got feelings, right? So it could have worked because Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. Now, it was evident by Simon's behavior that this was intended to be an insult, and Jesus knew Simon's heart. Now, in my own experience, and I'm sure for at least one or two others of you here, so I don't feel totally bad about this, I've had people treat me rudely, and I don't always respond the best. See, even my wife is suffering from disbelief here. So, you know, even as a disciple, there's something that can stir me up as a Christian, my passion about being mistreated or my integrity being questioned in any way. And when this happens, my pride and emotion can take over. You know, I, I do feel I've matured substantially since I've been part of the South Bay family here. I think partially that's a lot due to your personal examples here for me, personally. Uh, but I think this is something we've all encountered at one time or another, and we've said things that we maybe shouldn't have, or we behaved in a way that's less than gracious. But with saying all that, I am sure that Jesus was tempted to respond badly to Simon's disrespect. But fortunately for each and every one of us here, we have this amazing example that Jesus is way more gracious than I've been. I'm sure that may apply at least to the two of you here this morning. But when reading of how Jesus behaved in this setting, it's valuable for us to remember that Jesus not only came to give us life, he also came to show us how to live life. He showed us by his behavior how we, who are his followers, should treat others no matter how they interact with us. So, now at Simon's house, there's this woman. The text tells us that, depending on the translation, she's a sinful woman, an immoral woman, or a prostitute, depending on the translation. And, you know, and I, I would imagine, before we even go any further, when the term prostitute pops into our head, there's any number of things that may going on, be going on in our head, some of which might be judgmental. So, we're at Simon's house now. We have this woman 
She was unescorted, which is very unusual in that day and age. She was uninvited, unwanted, definitely unexpected. What's she doing here? One well, verse. Th- <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I don't want anybody getting upset here. I'm not speaking in tongues, okay? But in Luke 7, verse 37, it tells us that she had learned about the fact that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. You know, maybe she was invited by a friend. Maybe it was just the buzz out there on the street. And, um, you know, wanting to hear and see this amazing teacher. So having a gifted rabbi in your town would have been quite the attraction. Something like having a celebrity, a rock star, maybe someone like Jesse Mofid or Marty Solman showing up for us here today. And I can see that this unexpected guest slipping in the side door, I believe she was probably hoping to be unnoticed, maybe standing quietly behind Jesus, waiting to catch his attention so she could present her gift of this perfume that she brought and then leave. But then she begins to weep. I think there was something about being close to Jesus that simply overwhelmed her. I suspect she was a lot like you and I. You know, I think about my first time out to church. I didn't show up to see Jesus. Obviously with her, heart's in a little bit different place here. I didn't think it through as far as having the opportunity to connect with Christ, God in the flesh, the Creator, the Savior. And of every anything, looking at her response, her heart was way purer than mine. I came simply out of curiosity and get the Teagues, who were the ones that met Jackie and I, and my wife Jacqueline off of my back so I could say, I came, I saw, and now I'm done. I have zero interest, leave me alone. But while there, <laughs> by, the, by being there that close to Jesus, something about Jesus gets through. And suddenly there's a sense of, maybe I'm missing out on something here. Maybe there's something a little bit more going on here. And it could even be a day like this today for me or for you, whether you've been a long-term Christian or this is your first time being here, where all of a sudden scales kind of fall off the eyes. You know, maybe it's a Sunday like this. Maybe it's a conference. Maybe it's a midweek. Maybe it's simply the fellowship you know, interacting with one another. Maybe it's the worship, the singing, or a testimony that hits. I know I've been hit like this on any number of get-togethers on a deep spiritual, emotional level. So now, here stands this unexpected guest, this woman behind Jesus. Unexpectedly, something breaks within her, or perhaps frees her up, and she's not concerned about being real. She's not, being, she's not concerned about being vulnerable. The tears just come, and they literally fall on Jesus' unwashed feet and leave shrieks in the dirt and grime that Simon had refused to wash away. And in her embarrassment, she falls to her knees, she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. Then she pours perfume on them. And I can just imagine this scene, watching all this take place, and all of a sudden the smell of this amazing perfume. And of course, Simon was watching the entire drama unfold, and I can envision him smiling, you know, as he's thinking through, man, this guy doesn't even know who the heck's touching him. You know, that he's got this, I gotcha moment here, thinking that he's, he's this so-called prophet, doesn't know what he's talking about. In verse 39, it reads, if this man were a prophet, Jesus would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Jesus claims to be a prophet, and doesn't even know who this woman is. This is, this is his perspective. This is what, where he's coming from. 
And think about this for a minute. Think about how self-righteous and how self-righteousness in and of itself is so amazingly ugly. It's such an ugly thing. It puts a nasty, dirty film over a person's eyes and makes it so they can't see the inner value and the inner beauty of another person's soul. Or as Jesus would say, they have a plank in their eyes. Self-righteousness, like Simon's, is the type that scorns tears, laughs at repentance, and mocks mercy. And Simon, for me, and this, you know, having had experience in school, Simon has this attitude of the schoolyard bully that just knows he's better than everyone, that he's better than us, and he has the intention of making sure that each and every person that's on the receiving end of his interaction knows just that. And keep in mind, whenever we look down on anyone, whenever we're critical about someone or we look down on someone, even if they are in sin, who do we risk being like? Simon or Jesus? And regarding Simon in this situation, I'm no doubt that he's watching this woman kneel at Jesus' feet, thinking of some sharp, ugly comment that he could make that would embarrass this woman and Jesus right along with her. But we know Jesus. Jesus can handle insults against his own character, but the thing I love about him, he's not going to stand by and let somebody else be on the receiving end of it. If he's there, he'll check it. So with the precision of a surgeon, we see Jesus proceed to cut Simon to the heart and reveal the hypocrisy that lays within. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon responds, what does he want to tell me? And I just envision this gulp as he swallows hard, teacher. And Jesus then tells this story. There was once two men who owed a moneylender a great deal of money. One owned 5,000 denarii, another owed 500 denarii. Neither could repay the debt, and so the moneylender, thinking to cut his losses, canceled the debt of both. Now, Simon, which would love the moneylender more? You know, I'm sure Simon at this point, again, he's, you know, patting himself on the back. Oh, my gosh, this prophet, this is so stinking easy. Simon was a good Pharisee. And he couldn't just help to show his wisdom at this point in time with this upstart teacher, Jesus Christ. So he responded, I suppose the one who owed the most would love the most. And Jesus responded, well said, Simon, you have judged correctly. And I'm sure, you know, he's right there grinning, you know, man, I totally nailed this. And then Jesus literally turned his back on Simon, faced the woman, he turned away from the judgmental self-righteousness of the Pharisee to the simple repentance of this woman. Luke 7, verse 44. Right here we're told the rest of the story. Jesus says, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And again, everything up to this point that Jesus references that Simon didn't do would have been the correct and expected behavior based on the social etiquette of that day. Simon was so self-righteous, he refused to do it. Then in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her money, many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is that even forgives sin? 
And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, what an amazing scene that we've just witnessed here. We see this unexpected gift giver interacting and giving an amazing gift to an unexpected guest. Simon was oblivious to what he had just witnessed in this situation. He was a man who never felt the need for much forgiveness and therefore felt little love for those who did need it. In his self-righteousness, he also had little love for God in that we know in 1 John 4, verse 7, it tells us, Love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And I think this is an area that we've got to make sure that we remind ourselves of and that we're careful of moving forward, and that without a love and compassion for others, as Simon, we too have got to be careful because Simon didn't understand love for God, real love for God, nor did he understand real love for God and God's people. We need to be careful because it's so incredibly easy to slip into a self-righteous posture that can cause us to lose sight of or need to love God and love people. And with that, if we lose sight of that, we can pull back. We can get very comfortable in our own little lives, in our own little bubble, and we miss the bigger picture that God wants to make sure that we don't ignore. God reminds us continually about our relationship with him and others. You know, it started out with the Ten Commandments. Then again, the basic commandments that were established in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, can anybody tell me what Deuteronomy means? What was that, Andy? Say, it's, it's just that. It's the second law or repeated law. We need those reminders. I, I know Devin was waiting back there, and I, I usually dismiss you. I was going to get to you, brother, just in case, but... So that's exactly it. And we see this time and time again. Leviticus 19, another reminder, a lot more specific direction. But these passages, weren't these all things that Simon should have been familiar with? Of course they were. I mean, he more than likely had the bulk of the first five books of what we know as the Bible committed to memory. So he was more than aware, but it was definitively not part of his conduct. So all these passages, again, should have been familiar to Simon being called to love God and love our neighbors. We're called to love the one who loved us first. We are forgiven by the one who loved us first because of Christ. We've been forgiven much, and he has been forgiven much. It's called to what? Love. I'm not even going to justify it. I've been called to love much. Now, if we are Christians, Jackie, (laughs) Jesus' disciples, if we do not sense how much God has forgiven us, we're not going to love him or others the way that we should, right? So when Simon the Pharisee looked upon this woman, there was only one thing he saw. This woman was a prostitute. That's all he saw. And in his heart and in his eyes, she wasn't worthy of anything. She wasn't worthy of time, let alone worthy as being a guest in his home. And that's all she was and all she'd ever be to Simon. She wasn't going to change. And the thing that's even scarier about this, you might ask yourself, what would be scarier than that? Did he treat Jesus any better than this prostitute? So what's the major difference here between Simon and Jesus? I can tell you right now. Jesus never met a prostitute. Think about that for a minute. Jesus never met a prostitute. Now, how can you say that, Steve? 
Didn't he have a number of interactions with women as our society might call of ill repute? Maybe not our society today, but at some point in time in our society. That was the only way that she would have been viewed. But Jesus did not see a prostitute. He saw a child of God. He saw God's creation. He understood the significance of this woman and the challenges in the culture and the fact that she deserved grace and mercy just as much as anyone else. Tim Chester, in his book, Meal with Jesus, states, this is what Jesus is doing in eating with the marginalized. The marginalized cease to be marginal when they're included around a meal table. The lonely cease to be lonely. The alien ceases to be alien. Strangers become friends. I love this quote. Isn't that true? Think about the last time you were invited over to somebody's house for a meal. I don't know about you, when that happens for me, I feel special. I feel loved. You know, I think of a number of people, Blancos, Johnsons, Wingies, many of you have invited Jackie and I into your homes. And those are some of my most special kingdom memories. There's connection, there's love, there's community. Those things are huge. And in our day and age, we can lose sight because our schedules are so busy. And I'm not saying they're not. We're all busy. But again, do we not all eat? What an amazing point of connection. And I think some of us as parents, we've even lost sight of this within our own families. We don't sit down to a mealtime together. We've got to make that time. And you know, maybe your kids haven't experienced it in a while, and they're going to think it's a little funky. You need to push through, because faith starts at the dinner table. We've got to understand how significant, going back to Deuteronomy, what are we supposed to do with God's heart? In our head, in our our hearts, on our doorposts. We need those reminders. As parents, we need to be reminding our kids about how amazing God is, who Jesus Christ is so that they're able to do the same thing, that from generation to generation, we're able to make an impact based on what we see right here. It's such a short, simple quote. The alien ceases to be alien. Strangers become friends. I mean, I look back at Bruce and Nora Teague. I mean, in light of my world, they were kind of a weird couple. But the reality of it was, I was the one that was weird because I was missing the bigger picture, and they had the ability to bring it to me. And I'm grateful for that. I will always be grateful for that. So to Jesus, sin has always been an ugly old chest that hides the true beauty of what it's capable of inside. You may be wondering where I was going with the chest thing earlier. Here you go. It may be old. It may be beat up. And in need of the dirt and filth stripped away to reveal what's underneath. Jesus has the ability to do that. Just like us. Think about it. The mess of our sin the choices that we've made, they have distorted the image of God. But when we humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus, when we acknowledge our sin and emptiness and make Jesus Lord, guess what happens? The filth of sin and shame, guilt, it's all removed and we're transformed into what God intended. You know, this morning, what do you think Jesus sees when he looks at you? 
You know, if I'm not doing good spiritually, I can think of all the, the, the crazy, bad mess that's gone on in my life. But you know what? That isn't what Jesus sees. No. Do you really think that Jesus only sees where you've been and what you've done? It's just like with this prostitute. He didn't see a prostitute. I'm sure in that small town, she had a reputation. Everybody knew her. And they were absolutely shocked that this teacher would actually have the interaction he had with her, that he'd address her. But not only that, he forgave her sins and granted her peace. What does Jesus see when he sees us? See, what he really looks at is the beauty of your soul and the value that lies within. You know, as Kid Coming Coin, as we were going through the 40 days of prayer, Jesus sees you. Jesus got you. He's there. When God looks at you, he sees his son, which whom he is well pleased. You know, he invites you in, the unexpected guests, and he, like the father with the prodigal son, he looks and he waits with great expectation and anticipation for you to approach him, as this woman did, in humility. He then, as he did with the sinful woman, eagerly forgives us, defends us, and restores us to a right relationship with God as we live his word out and are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And you know, this is just one account of Christ, and Jesus was interrupted. It's amazing the number of meals and sit-downs he had where he was interrupted by other people. One of my other favorite ones is where he's in that house, and you know, the guys start peeling back the roof, and they, they drop the paralytic on in on him. He was constantly being interrupted. And you know what? He welcomed those interruptions, especially for those that were desperate for help in their lives. He wasn't angry with them, with any of them for messing up or messing with his agenda. Instead, he had compassion, and he stopped to meet their needs. We need to be thinking about this. Is this who we are when we see those in need? The next time your seating chart's thrown off by an unexpected guest, think of the opportunity that you've got. God has given you this opportunity to welcome someone in Jesus' name. Let's not be like Simon the Pharisee and prejudge people, but instead, let's see an unexpected guest as an opportunity to be like Jesus. We we think we can do that? Another quote from Tim Chester. Look into the faces of the people on the subway, and you can transition that to the 405 or the 101 or whatever highway that you're on. We don't, we don't have a subway system here that amounts for much. But you will see it on the drivers sitting out on the, the 405 during rush hour. See the toll that the rat race takes on its victims. In this culture, our shared meals offer a, a moment of grace, a sign of something different. A pointer to God's coming world. Life in the kingdom demands that we adopt a new set of table manners And as we observe this etiquette, we become increasingly civilized according to the codes of not this city, but the city of God. Around the table, we offer friendship and celebrate life. Am I safe in saying we've all experienced that? No, seriously. Have we not all experienced it at least once in our lifetime? Our meals offer a divine moment. An opportunity for people to be seduced by grace into a better life, a truer life, and a more human existence. You know, how about we go search out an unexpected guest 
And we invite them to see Jesus in us, in our family, in our Bible talk, at our meals. Especially as we, we're, we're starting up with these meals once a month here where you can bring people on out to. You don't have to prep anything. Just bring an unexpected guest along with you so they can experience community, God's community. See, these are all opportunities for us to sit down with an unexpected guest. I want to close with Matthew 28. I know that this may trigger some of you. I, I, I heard a couple of, why, why is that? Think about it. Why, why is that? Didn't we used to talk about this as Jesus' last words? Isn't, isn't there some significance to that? You know, think about the words that, for those of you that have children or nieces or nephews or whatever it may be, that are younger than you. Would you not choose your last words carefully? Would you hope that they cover, carry some weight? Would you hope that there's something that would be remembered? Uh, we got to get away from viewing this as being problematic. And I'll explain it here in a, in a minute. But let's go ahead. And what I'd like us to do, you got it up there on the screen. I, I love something that Andy kind of brought back in here, and that's the corporate resonance of people repeating the same thing together. I'm going to start us out in verse 18, and I'd like you to read along with me. Amen? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, verse 18. Are you ready? Then Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Amen. You know, I, I particularly love the way it closes. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 must be viewed as the gospel's climax. But over and above all of that, it needs to be appreciated that it looks more towards the future than to the past. We have no control over the past. But we have the ability to speak into today. We have the ability to speak into the future. We have the ability to act accordingly as we move forward as Christians. This is a bridging passage that concludes Matthew's story of the historical Jesus. And it points us to a new era which we should be excited about. An era of universal mission for the church which conducts its endeavors under the protection and guidance of the risen Christ and the Holy Spirit. This passage is a careful summary of the key themes of the gospel. When Jesus promised the disciples that he would always be with them, he assured us of a spiritual, global victory. Now, the main conclusion here is that the Great Commission is a call to global missions. And that is what we are a part of. This was something that was exemplified by Christ and his followers and the early church and will be, and needs to be exemplified by us as we look to welcome those unexpected guests into our lives. And when it comes to this passage, would you say it's fair to say we haven't talked about it a lot here over the last few years? And that's, that's neither a good thing or a bad thing. 
But I think we really do need to assess our response to this passage. It is significant, as is anything that came out of Jesus' mouth. Mom, I'm going to kind of rat you out here a little bit. But, you know, I love this with Jackie and her mom in studying the Bible. You know, we we can all have different issues with different parts of the Bible. And the Old Testament is definitely a little different than the New Testament. There's a lot more blood and gore. Old Testament is kind of rated R. New Testament is more PG-13 with the exception of the crucifixion. But her whole thing was there were some things in the Old Testament she wasn't super fond of. So what Jackie said to her is, okay, so are you good with what Jesus says? Her mom's all, yeah. So Jackie said, well, I'm going to buy you a red-letter Bible. And we'll just read through the stuff that Jesus says. And if it resonates with you, you'll see your need to become a disciple. She read the red-letter version of the Bible, you know, everything that Jesus said. And we understand this is a part of it. And I don't, want to, I don't want to dismiss the fact that maybe some of you, especially those of you that have been around 30, 40 years, this passage may have been used to beat you over the head a little bit. And I think early on in my ministry as a young Christian, I was one of those that wielded it that way. And I'm sorry. There's a reality here, though. We cannot dismiss this from our walk. And I will do everything I can to undo and change any of the methodology that's been wrong. And this is, I think, one of the things that we've got to be careful with as a church is a method over mission. It's mission, period. Methodology is God's. And it was established through Christ. We have his word and we have the Holy Spirit. So let's not throw this out. Let's make sure we embrace this as a part of our lives going forward. And you know me, I love beating the Matthew 22 drum, love God, love your neighbor. I totally believe I could literally bring people to Christ with that passage alone by walking them through their life and whether or not it's in accordance with what God's established, period. Honestly, we believe it, we live it, that's all we need. But this is a part of who we are. There's a spiritual global mission that we need to be aware of. So saying all that, with Jesus, remember with Jesus, you're not unexpected, but you are his honored, invited, expected guest. He's waiting for you to enter his home and feast with him for eternity. What an incredible dinner party to be seated at the table of honor with Jesus. Before we pray for communion, let's take a moment to think about the unexpected guest, gift we've received from the King of Kings given to us by the most outrageous, generous gift giver of all, God the Father. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, just thinking this through, it's just amazing the lengths that you would go to to develop a relationship with us. Now, even as we have the opportunity to go through Luke 7 today and understanding all the miracles that had taken place up to this point in time with Jesus, the fact that you know, I mean, it, it, to make a stance and to, to call someone to be able to see or walk, or to heal those types of situations, but to be able to see deeper into someone's soul and realize there's healing that needs to take place there. And that he would model, us, model that for us with this, as the Pharisee viewed, sinful woman, yet Jesus was willing to give her time, but more than that, to interact, to have empathy, to validate her as one of God's creations and forgive her sin and send her off in peace. Father, I pray that for me in particular that you can remove all scales of judgment from my eyes.
that you're giving the ability to see the world as Jesus did and does, as harassed and helpless. And that we have this amazing opportunity here today to be able to give out of our abundance to fund places that most of us would not even want to live, yet we have brothers and sisters that are making amazing inroads for you around the world. Father, be with them, be with us, be with our children, be with our grandchildren. Help for us, those of us that are disciples, to really be that example that can help guide others to be like you. Father, again, I am so personally grateful for the cross, more grateful for the resurrection, knowing that each of us has the opportunity to live a resurrected life now and forever. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us. 